our devices are listening to us. Previous generations of audio technology transmitted, recorded or manipulated sound. Today are digital voice assistants, smart speakers and a growing range of related technologies are increasingly able to analyze and respond to it as well. Scientists and engineers increasingly refer to this as machine listening, though the first widespread use of the term was in computer music. Machine listening is much more than just a new scientific discipline or vein of technical innovation however. It is also an emergent field of knowledge power, of data extraction and colonialism, of capital accumulation, automation and control. It demands critical and artistic attention. Andre Dow talks to artist Sean Doc Ray, legal scholar James Parker, and curator Joel Stern about UN Global Pulse, the UN's big data initiative, and in particular one program which uses machine learning to analyze radio content in Uganda. They discuss the increasing entanglements of big tech, the UN and human rights discourse more broadly, as well as an emergent right to be counted. So, my name is Andre Dow. Um, yeah, I guess I primarily see myself as a writer. And as a writer, um, I've been working um, with a mix of sort of different forms for, for a while now. Um, chiefly sort of oral history and fiction um, combined with journalism somewhere in, in that sort of mix. Um, and so when I was thinking about how that work relates to um, to your project, um, I suppose there's always been this element of listening um, involved in my work as a writer. Um, uh, listening and recording. Um, so that begins with sort of my work as in fiction and family history um, is... Um, really built around a series of conversations I had with my grandparents over many years using um, various kinds of recording devices in their um, in their apartment in Paris. Um, and um, I suppose coming out from that, I then have done oral history work, um, focused around immigration detention, on migration more generally in Australia. Um, but yeah, so I guess there's this element of listening in that work, but there's also this um, these themes of migration and incarceration um, that's both in the migration context, immigration context, but also um, in my family history. Um, there's kind of this these threads of um, both being detained um, in places, um, waiting in places, but also moving across borders. Um, so those are sort of some of the things that I think has float through my work as a writer. Um, as a scholar, um, I guess I may consider myself an extremely junior scholar. Um, uh, um, I'm at about halfway through a PhD project at the moment um, that is sort of ostensibly on um, the question of big data and human rights. But fairly early on in that project, um, I thought, I, I think a lot of work around big data and human rights is um, looking at kind of what human rights law can do to tame big data or else what um, big data can do to um, 
to make human rights work more efficient. And in my um, PhD project, I've been more interested in um, what happens to our conception of human rights as well as the work of human rights as, um, as actors within the human rights sphere take up the tools and rhetoric of big data. How that all comes together um, is something that I'm still thinking about. Um, but I think if there's a thread that ties together my work as a writer and artist and that scholarly work, it has something to do with um, the difference between being a human listener um, in an oral history context or in a, in, in a writerly context um, and, and, and a machine listener and what difference that makes to um, these various kinds of projects, human rights work or fiction writing or oral history. I know that we're going to spend more time um, with on the academic side of things, I think, through the interview. But I'm, I'm sort of interested just uh, to, to ask a quick question about sort of form and method with um, your writing and especially where, where you, how you choose to use fiction and when fiction kind of um, seems to make sense, particularly when you're sort of balancing or moving between uh, forms of oral history um, and fiction? Is it to fill gaps? Is it to, you know what I mean? Is it um, like, what, what, what is it that fiction offers you in the writing process? Mm. Um, there's definitely partly a, um, a slightly practical drive to fiction, or at least in terms of, so the context of um, my fiction writing is this family kind of history project. Um, and yeah, there's definitely a filling gaps um, part to to the turn to fiction, um, and also um, um, some sense of um, wanting to um, have a kind of almost plausible deniability when it comes to to my relationship with my own family. And when this book gets published, um, publishing it as fiction, I think makes a difference. Uh, I think more in as a matter of like artistic form though, um, I also, th I think that um, for my writing, working in fiction uh, allows me to, to focus more squarely on, um, I suppose the, the work of memory as kind of a fictional process um, in itself. Um, but when I say, yeah, so when I say that I'm working in fiction, I think there are lots of nonfiction writers that I admire greatly who use very similar techniques. They happen to badge it or their publishers badge it as nonfiction, experimental nonfiction or so on. But it's in that kind of um, realm of so, so some of them thinking of, um, for example, as Maria Tamakin um, as a nonfiction writer, but um, she uses a great deal of techniques drawn from um, not strictly from nonfiction. Should we maybe move um, back onto Global Pulse uh, and the work on big data? I mean, we, we, we could spend a lot, long time talking about um, writing more generally, but you've been doing some work on this thing called the UN Global Pulse. I, I was utterly amazed to find out you know, that this existed, and I'm sure that many other people would be too. Um, can, can you explain a little bit about what it is, where it comes from, um, what, what kinds of 
projects are undertaken in its name? Sure. So um, the Global Pulse is um, badged as the UN Secretary General's Innovation Initiative. And essentially um, what that means is um, it's the, the UN's attempt to um, get to grips with um, what they understand as big data technologies, um, so largely machine learning, uh, based on machine learning, and to try and harness that technology to, um, to complete their um, or to achieve their human rights and development mandates. Um, its headquarters um, is in the um, is in New York, um, just a few blocks down from the UN headquarters. Um, but they've set up two satellite labs, so one in Uganda and one in Indonesia, and they basically produce um, prototypes of big data tools for development, um, data gathering tools. So they might partner with um, other UN agencies like the UNHCR to, say, monitor Twitter feeds um, uh, of um, to pick up data about um, migration routes um, through the MED. They, they might also work with, say, the Ugandan government to monitor um, Ugandan talkback radio to try and um, pick up early warnings of hate speech and potential for um, for violence against refugees in Uganda. Um, or they might use big data techniques to monitor and predict um, smog um, and pollution, air pollution in Jakarta. I guess the impetus behind um, the Global Pulse seems to be the UN's anxiety about its own competency to complete its work. So I think one of the kind of hidden hidden stories to the Global Pulse is the UN's ongoing financial crisis. It's just run out of money. And it, I think it looks across at big tech and, and sees an opportunity to continue to do its work in a way that um, I think they, they, they both see it as a way of making their work more efficient, but also by taking up the rhetoric around big data that it can attract um, a certain kind of investment, whether it's from the technology companies themselves or from governments, um, particularly in, in, say, Scandinavian countries that are very excited about supporting data projects in places like um, Uganda and Indonesia. And I think that side of the story becomes pretty clear when you look at the launch of the Global Pulse um, back in, I think, 2012, um, where um, the then Secretary General Ban Ki-moon launched the Pulse alongside um, you know, former executives from Amazon and Apple. Um, and it, the Global Pulse is headed up by um, a former head of Microsoft's humanitarian systems. So it's it seems pretty clear, I think, even just from the personnel involved, that uh, this is the UN's attempt to to ride um, uh, kind of the, that big tech wave. Could you maybe give us an example of ha- how one of these experiments or tools works? I mean, I was particularly interested in talking through um, I think what they call the radio content analysis tool, just in terms of thinking about machine listening or how machine listening might be deployed by or produced by something like the UN. 
how, what, you know, what is what is this radio content analysis tool? Yeah, so that's one of their prototypes. Before I explain the radio content analysis tool, I, um, I did want to mention that one odd thing about the Global Pulse is in my research so far, um, all of these, whether it's the radio content analysis tool or any of the other um, um, initi- um, kind of programs that they set up, it's it's never clear to what extent any of it gets taken up by other parts of the UN. Um, so they've been operating for kind of um, eight years now and it seems that they kind of um, continually produce prototypes and push for more use of machine learning techniques throughout the UN. But the actual tools themselves don't necessarily seem to have a lot of take-up. So the importance or the significance of the Global Pulse seems to lie elsewhere than the actual use of this technology, at least at the moment, um, which is maybe something we can come back to. The radio content analysis tool is um, one of the prototypes developed by their Kampala lab in Uganda. Um, And its um, function is to essentially analyse Ugandan talkback radio. And so in the documentation about the tool, um, the Pulse really emphasised this kind of overwhelming amount of um, audio um, that's produced by Ugandan radio every day. Um, and the point there is to really emphasise the the incapacity of the human um, in the human listener in that situation. There's no um, there's no possibility of having enough people listening to enough radio stations to capture everything that's going on. Uh, and so that's where machine learning comes in. Uh, and so the tool um, works by first filtering out music and ads from all of the radio played in Uganda um, and then producing, um, using spe- speech recognition um, software to produce transcripts of, um, of the talkback radio portions. Um, and then it uses keyword filtering that's been um, kind of trained by, by human analysts and human taggers to um, to pick out supposedly relevant snippets of conversation. And so the, the diagram that the Pulse uses to illustrate this process is you kind of start with this really large box of unstructured um, data and then it, that box gets smaller and smaller as they, um, as they intervene with more machine learning processes, culminating in this kind of useful tagged and categorized information at the end Uh, and that useful information at the end um, varies between it could be their examples that they give is it could be um, picking up instances of hate speech on on Ugandan radio again um, you know aimed at vulnerable groups like refugees Um, but it could also be more in the vein of kind of user feedback on on service services so refugees calling in to complain about um, say the health and sanitation services in a refugee camp and so that's the the basic idea of it so i should you know play my card as in a way as as somebody who works in a law faculty and i just what you were describing then you know i think it sounds intuitively plausible on some level but as somebody who's read hundreds and hundreds of pages of judgments at the end of extremely long trials debating whether or not something constitutes hate speech. I'm just immediately thinking, how on earth, what, what, who, who, what kind of things are being picked up on? Uh, is it 
you know, just references to ethnicities? Is it like what 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 is constituting hate speech for the purposes of the analytic or, or uh, whether or not it works? I, I just want I'd just be fascinated to know what are they even thinking it would mean for a content analysis tool to be able to detect something like hate speech? Yeah. So from what I can see from their documentation, the um, I mean, the process uh, is necessarily reductive um, and the ability to, um, to tag um, sort of 30 second snippets as potentially hate speech is, um, yeah, it's pretty simplistic um, and the sort of keyword filtering that they use it yeah it is I think it does seem that it's as simple as in the end a team of human designers um, coming up with lists of um, of words that seem to be relevant um, to say hate speech hey, so, so then, sorry um, and, and those teams of designers are in New York right so that's not a team of designers that, for example, knows the euphemisms in the local language. I mean, I'm just thinking of the Rwandan genocide and the specific ways in which euphemism were deployed in the promotion of hate speech there, right? So I don't know how an algorithm would be able to detect that. So that, that it's New York designers who are inputting that those analytics. Um, at least at the first instance, I guess um, the promise of the um of the tool is that um as it gets rolled out those things get refined but in some ways that's i mean your question i think and and particularly your reference to say the the kind of the legal procedures involved um post rwandan genocide i mean it's kind of precisely that sort of lengthy convoluted legal proceeding that um, this entire, um, like the, the the pulses sort of reason for being, I mean, is to to sort of short circuit that, right? Is to to say, and this is in all, in, in all the ways that they describe the operation of the tool, is that you're dealing in a situation of crisis, um, that there's a vast amount of data out there that um, is described as data exhaust. So you get this picture of it, A, being produced, for free or it's sort of produced as detritus following people's um, kind of everyday lives. But particularly I think that image of exhaust is it's, it's escaping. It needs to be captured quickly. And that combined with this, always the emphasis on crisis um, and always the emphasis on real-time data. Um, the point is you, we don't have the time for those sorts of legal niceties um, or even social cultural understandings of euphemisms and so on we just don't have the time for it and the UN needs to kind of act almost instantly and so that's where this technology comes in so it's trading out preemption well trading out judgment and justice mechanisms for a logic of preemption and prevention absolutely yeah prevention and yeah so it's not it, it doesn't really um, operate under a rubric of justice in that sense. Um, it's much more something like executive rule or, or management. Yeah, I can't help but also think of the financial sort of problems that you referenced at the beginning of um, 
of, of all of this. And that it's just imagining that tools like this would also sort of be imagined to be cost, maybe revenue generating on the one hand, but also cost saving on the other hand of, um, you know, because then in theory, you need fewer people on the ground, like who have this kind of whatever deep knowledge of um, kind of, you know, me meanings of language and, and all this kind of thing. And, and instead you have a system that can just sort of alert the right people to potential problems. So um, I think that's interesting tying, tying the development of this tool to the kind of financial problems that the UN more generally is, is experiencing. Yeah, I guess what's, I mean, it's interesting there. One of the things I'm interested there is that, um, so while kind of expert, the like, rule of experts that um, uh, an international organization like the UN has been it has been criticised, I think, for um, bringing in um, to both the human rights and development sort of spheres, right? It's like you bring in these experts and um, they can uh, produce this kind of technocratic rule. It seems like um, what the Pulse is doing goes beyond or even sits outside of that logic because, as you say, it's um, even bypassing that expert with the the kind of deep, you know, local knowledge or history or, and, and moving towards a model where, yeah, someone um, sitting in Manhattan um, is not even necessarily being the person that monitors, but they're just simply the person that designs the algorithm that the algorithm then does the monitoring. James, uh, a little earlier, sort of said, slipped in, or on the way to saying something else said, who who's writing this code, you know, and, and uh, a few in a few of our conversations, there's been talk about getting who is at the table at the conception and design of these systems. I'm just sort of interested. Do you have a sense of of um, who? Well, on the one hand, who's yes, sort of conceiving of the systems, but also who's who's actually implementing them? Who's working on what types of people are being employed to actually develop these systems? Yeah, so it's probably important there to acknowledge that so while the pulse is headquartered in um new york um from what i can can tell the like the Kampala lab and the jakarta lab um do employ a lot of local staff um and you know they are um employing local data scientists um i guess the question there is for me is um what, and what I haven't um, yet um, sort of followed up on is, you know, so where were these data scientists trained? Because kind of, I guess, on a very surface level, you look at, um, you know, the photo, the staff photos for those two labs, and it seems like, you know, it is, um, say, a lot of Ugandans working on the radio content analysis tool uh, on some level. But, um, yeah, there's still... a a question in my mind of well you know what kind of training where, where were they trained what kind of assumptions about um about data do they bring to the project um on the question of who uh, another way that i've been thinking about about that is not so much at the design level but um i guess one of the things that the pulse says about about the radio content analysis tool and about their other 
machine learning tools um, is that it fits within this rubric of um, of participation. So the UN for for a long time now has been um, talking about uh, people-centered development. Um, there's participation and informed consent. Um, that sort of language is incorporated into a lot of their human rights work, into their development work. And what that means seems to be shifting, at least when it comes to the involvement of the global pulse. So participation in a process, in a kind of a human rights process, um, it seems to be participation could just mean that your data is being scraped from a Twitter feed. Or that your, um, or that some people's uh, calls to talkback radio in Uganda have been uh, tagged and categorised and turned into a chart and read in um, at you know, UN headquarters in in New York. That that's a form of participation, or that that's what makes development people centred. And so that um, yes, I, I find that a very interesting potential shift i mean it's also a form of double speak isn't it you mean you wouldn't say that you know counter-terrorism you know is people-centered for example you know i mean i'm really struck by how similar what you're describing is to many of the um nsa's programs that were you know revealed by snowden and in fact you know around precisely around the time when Global Pulse is being developed. There's a, a quotation in the, the essay that you shared with us that blew my mind. Um, it, so this is the Independent Expert Advisory Group on the Data Revolution for Sustainable Development, which I, I kind of want to know more about. But you quote them as saying, never again should it be possible to say we didn't know. No one should be invisible. This is the world we want, a world that counts. So a world in which we count everyone all of the time. I mean, that is exactly the same rhetoric as the NSA's program of total capture in the name of counterterrorism. And I, one of the things that interests me is how it's possible for an organization like the UN to speak that way without, without recognizing the incongruity. Like, you know... Um, it seems like there must be a lot of in, there must be a lot of is it a lot of faith in the idea of data for good or just a fundamental commitment to them not being you know the NSA so that so that it doesn't it simply doesn't present a problem but i was just i was just amazed by the kind of the hubris of that as a goal for the UN and i guess i guess that sort of slides into a question about what the UN itself understands to be the risks of the programs, you know, the, the big data turn or what have you that it's developing and, and how you think alternatively uh, we might think about those risks or, um, or what mm. have you. Yeah, it's quite odd, isn't it, that um, surveillance as a word and, and as a concept just doesn't seem to get... Um, picked up in this conversation like as soon as you're you're in the kind of data or ai for good world um this yeah quite similar seeming practices just don't get that label surveillance um and it seems to be that surveillance 
has some tie to security um, and that we have this kind of conceptual link between those two um, and that somehow in the kind of AI for good realm because it's where, where it's not explicitly based around security or law enforcement it's no longer surveillance in that quote that you read out about um, the world that counts um, so I think what what I found interesting in my research has been the move that um, the UN makes the move that that independent advisory group on the data revolution uh, makes uh, to authorize this vision of a world in which everyone um, is surveilled essentially but they that they can't is they um, they talk about the right to be counted and so actually this is where um, it's I think a good example of the use of human rights at least conceptually to authorize a move that otherwise we'd think of in terms of surveillance and 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 and, and certain kinds of people would then um, you know, have a repertoire of resistance to, um, but by using this move of saying actually there's a right to be counted, and so that that right to be counted that is to say that it's it's already a human rights violation to not be counted by these processes, um, to not be seen or heard by machine listening or machine vision. Um, I think that's just such a interesting move because it's very i think in in sort of a lot of the languages available to us for um political activism it's quite hard to um to even see that that move's happened first of all but then to um kind of intelligibly um articulate a resistance to this idea of um so they 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 place the right to be counted as prior to every other human right so you can't have, you know, the right to house. You can't have your right to housing fulfilled unless you've you've first been counted as a person. Um, and there's this kind of conflation, I think, between, I guess, a, a deliberate conflation, really, of between this idea of being counted or being measured and being quantified through algorithmic processes, and counting as in, you know, mattering. But it's in that. Yeah, so I think that's in that sort of slippage. Um, it then authorizes a whole lot of stuff that we might otherwise have concerns about. I'll say <laughs> it's almost um, so, sort of analogous to like um, the the right to vote or something in a in a kind of democracy. Like to be counted is sort of to participate in the the functioning of a sort of political system in the same way that, you know, perhaps um, voting in it might be. It's almost like a, a sort of a more pa passive way of having your say, let's let's say. And um, I, I kind of want to, um, you know, ask a couple of like bigger sort of dumber questions to, to sort of provoke, let's, let's say, um, from you a, a sort of let's say even a provisional sort of position on um this policy so i mean i'm tempted tempted to ask you know do, do you think that this program pulse or or certain sort of tools just um 
simply sh- should not exist, you know, sh- should, you know, be, be sort of put to a stop, uh, are likely to do more harm than good, etc. And, you know, so are, are you sort of fundamentally sceptical about the use claims they make? And, you know, if, if so, what, what are the... Um, you know, negative horizons, like what, what are the sort of most um, serious problems and concerns um, that, that we should be mindful of? Hmm. Um, so am I fundamentally opposed to, um, to the use of these technologies in a human rights context or, or by the UN? Sure. I mean, ha- however you want to interpret um, that, but I mean, I think perhaps na- narrowing the question to you know the, the UN and this sort of specific program, when, when as you're sort of researching it and, and and looking at it and going into it sort of more deeply, are you thinking this simply sh- sort of shouldn't exist as a program, or it should be fundamentally different to what it is? I guess I'm just tr- trying to get to the sense of whether what we're saying is these programs should be better, sort of safer, more regulated, more sort of stringently sort of applied? Or are we saying, no, this is a fundamental wrong turn and we should sort of, what's the kind of, um, from from an activist or a sort of political intervention um, into this, what, what's the position that you think is, mm. is going to be the productive one? Um, so maybe my way of grappling with that question um, is through, I, I, I know that in the um, kind of the, the prep doc that, um, that you guys sent around, there was a question around how I, why I use um, jurisdictional thinking in, in my PhD project and maybe a very quick um, answer to that or at least a partial answer to what, what I find useful in jurisdictional thinking is um, this emphasis or um, yeah, that part of jurisdictional thinking, I think, um, emphasizes a question, a who question of like kind of who decides in relation to your question, Joel, then around these technologies, um, I've been wondering about, um, whether or not that who question does really matter. Um, and the reason I'm thinking of that is sometimes I see artists and activists taking up some of these technologies, right, um, to do quite interesting work, quite useful work, it seems. Um, and so I'm wary of maybe accepting fully the um, kind of the import of your question and, and saying, because while I am quite sceptical of the use of these technologies by the UN, I'm not sure yet whether it's a question of the technologies or what, uh, yeah. Does that make sense of, I've been wondering what, what difference it makes, who's wielding the technologies and for what purpose. Uh, Could I follow up there? Because, because it seems to me that the question is not about in your writing. The question is not about the technology. You talk about big data as a concept that has been taken up by the UN as a program that's been taken up by the UN, not a technology that's been taken up by the UN. And so when you start to think that way about big data as 
an orientation to the world which has a certain kind of visual rhetoric and buys into a language of innovation and can start to imagine something like the right to be counted, then you've got a much more sort of complex, you know, socio-technical ideological beast than, than simply a technology which can be deployed or not deployed by this organization or person and that one. Mm. I mean, so what if we were to reframe the question and say, are you opposed to the way in which big data has been taken up by the UN? But as opposed to asking, are you, are you opposed to uh-huh. data or data analytics or machine learning per se? Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, you're right as a program, um, what has happened where the UN takes up big data as a program is this vision um, of where um, I think what there's one, the Global Pulse's chief data scientist um, talks about by, by 2030 we'll know everything from everyone so no one will be left behind. Um, so it's insofar as yeah, that kind of logic is carried with this program, with these technologies of the knowing everything from everyone. That's um, that's sort of yeah, I'm, I'm certainly opposed to to the UN moving in that direction. In terms of the the, the negative horizons or things we should be worried about, um, and this ties back to something that James you asked um, a little earlier around. The risks, the risks that the UN sees is is very squarely around the privacy question, and I think that's um, probably unsurprising um, to you guys that they see the only potential problems around, say, the radio content analysis tool or any of their other pulses, other um, projects, is kind of individual privacy. Um, Whereas I think there are much bigger um, and, and very different types of risks involved here. I mean, one of them we've alluded to before is um, the global pulse um, and the taking up of big data um, by the UN is um, proving to be a way into international institutions for big tech um, so um, that has, it seems to have an interesting effect on the kind of authority of the big tech companies themselves as they work with the UN and do human rights work. Um, I mean, I've seen the, um, the CEO of Microsoft kind of explicitly um, and quite, I think, crassly make this connection where he talks up Microsoft's human rights work and its partnerships with the UN and then um, sort of immediately segues into their facial recognition software and how they're doing all the right things around privacy for facial recognition software. But, you know, what the audience is left with is this initial impression of, but Microsoft is working with the UN, it's doing this good human rights work. I think that already does some 
authorizing work for the the facial recognition software for example that i mean particularly you know, if um the programs aren't even being enacted so that the doing good human rights work remains entirely at the level of speculation it's enough for it never to be enacted so long as the collaboration is there i mean it seems to me that the to invent such a thing as the right to be counted even if it's very early days is doing a lot of work for big tech potentially down the road as well a complete reconfiguration of what it means to be in the world to be a subject of development i mean that's sort of a little bit far away because it's not exactly like a, a massive rights document that's been fully elaborated but even to see that idea is mm. well the um the other one of the other interesting um kind of images from that, that the same report that introduces this right to be counted is and and that also talks about that you know the the world that we want is the world where everyone counts um is this image of two worlds they they talk about you know there's there's a world where um, we have great access to the internet and great access to to these new technologies um, and there's another world where you know people don't have that and I think that framing immediately puts us into that kind of familiar developmental timeline of like of you know from the priv- from the primitive to the advanced and what it does, I think, just it creates a single image of the future that we're all sort of striving towards, which is where these technologies are fully rolled out. And this program of knowing everything from everyone is is fully realised. It kind of presents the question only as how do we help Africa and Asia and the developing world catch up to that world where we know everything about everyone? And it's not you know, it, it obviously obscures the question of whether or not that world is one we want to get to in the first place. Um, and it presents that gap as a, as a question of justice and equity. Um, and so if you're concerned about questions of social justice, you, you focus on the gap and you miss the fact that what, you know, what, what we're purportedly aiming towards has um, potentially huge negative um, ramifications mm. I mean it begs the question of um, like I'm just sort of thinking about a statement like everybody counts from the UN in relation to a, a statement like um, Black Lives Matter <laughs> for, for instance like they're, they're sort of somehow no, notionally doing similar kind of work in tr- trying to say you, you know um, create a sort of politics of, of sort of who is counted and 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 I'm just wondering about like the UN trying to roll out a program like the radio analysis tool, for instance, in the United States or or in Australia or in the UK, um, and how different programmatically and politically it would be as it sort of intersected with all of the sort of infrastructures that exist in those countries, um, and so so how much the kind of relative, you know, political power of for instance, the United States and the UN in relation to Uganda structures a, pro- a program like mm. this. If we sort of imagine this tool being rolled out in Australia across sort of hundreds of radio stations, it's, I mean, it's very speculative, but I'm imagining there would be a number of ch- sort of... It would just be called ASIO. 
<laughs> well, that I mean, that's also goes back to the point you're making about the NSA um, and the fact that um, these programs essentially already exist in other sort of departmental and political spaces. And so they are kind of then taken up in a, by the UN and, and perhaps in a slightly more transparent, more transparent than the NSA <laughs> marginally. There's this kind of service delivery aspect to it, I think, which, I mean, is interesting for one thing is the question of whether or not that's how the, this positioning of the UN as you know, delivering services to customers. And actually there's a, um, a slip of the, of the tongue at the launch of the Global Pulse, perhaps because um, it's not the Secretary General, but I think an, under, an undersecretary, but he refers to essentially you know, the global poor as the, the UN's customers and that, this, this, that the Pulse is going to help us know more about our customers. Um, and perhaps that's because he's following up from or introducing these you know, execs from Amazon and Apple but that's already a shift in how we, uh, of how the UN would view its. Um, so a, that's a shift in how the UN presents its work. But um, b, I think, yeah, it just it fits within a much more benign uh, kind of understanding of what surveillance is if it's kind of badged as, um, yeah, and, and consumer feedback really, you know. Um, even though ultimately what some of this data could and probably will authorise will be international intervention, military intervention at some point. Like that's, I mean, that's certainly where this idea of early warning systems around hate speech, I mean, what, what can that be pointing towards except a situation in which, you know, machine listening picks up enough data on um, future hate crimes that authorises military intervention. I mean, that it can't be a coincidence that they've gone for radio first. I mean, you know, after the Rwandan genocide, where the mm. story that gets told is that radio is one of the prime drivers, and so much of the discourse after it was either we should have intervened early, we being the US and Europe primarily, or we should have jammed the radio stations at the very least. Mm, mm, mm. It just, it just must be that it was conceived with that in mind. I mean, is, is, is there, are they explicit about that? They don't make that, um, that connection explicitly. But, yeah, I mean, it, it's definitely floating around in there, I think. Mm-hmm. I mean, they give, lots of, they give lots of examples to do with sort of, um, you know, environmental disasters like, like you know, floods or th- or, and sort of the way in which responses to, the, to those might be sort of accelerated but i suppose again there we're in we're in territory uh, where you know what happens in the wake of an environmental disaster is not always um you know positive development but also kind of exploitation of that disaster especially in, in relation to sort of you know multinational companies hey i, I just had a um uh, I just wanted to return to this um, concept of a world that counts and everyone counting. And just to make a really dumb c- connection to the um, uh, to the census or to a kind of like census within a country. And, and that's obviously like often rolled out with, with exactly the same 
justification, which is, and sometimes with the same branding as well, we, you know, we want everyone to count. And, and certainly in the US, there's a, like, uh, there's a lot of political um, struggle around the census. And, and, you know, we, we do want <laughs> to count everyone, um, particularly undocumented workers, because that's how political power is apportioned. That's how, you know, tax dollars and funding, you know, there, there are a lot of, so I, I can see the the UN sort of deploying that um, kind of rhetoric and justification. But I guess the big difference, and so what I'm asking you to do is a little bit to, because I'm naive, is to explain the UN to me. But part of the difference is that the, like what gets apportioned in the UN's vision of a world in which everyone counts because like through big data, like what, um, in a way, it seems like part of the problem is all of this is collected, but there's what mechanisms are there to take it up and use it in a in a in a um, positive way, and maybe that's kind of related to the problem of that a lot of these uh, observation that a lot of these pilot programs aren't actually taken up because what um, maybe the question is like who or what areas within the UN have the capacity to um, make use of these. Um, these technologies, you know, in, in a, in a, in a useful way. Mm. I mean, that's, I think that's why the, the slip of the tongue where the, um, where the UN official refers to, um, the global poor as the UN's customers. I mean, it's, it's a revealing one, not just because of the, of that leading to that um, question around corporate power, um, and so on, but, um, I think it's also interesting simply because it's not correct. It's, you know, the, the UN is made up of its kind of constituent state members. And this, what's really one of the really fascinating aspects of um, everything that the Pulse does, it tries, I think, to reframe, or it's part of, it's part of a, a larger ongoing process of within the UN of reframing its, its constituency as you know, the peoples of the world and that it, derive some kind of direct authority to um, to make better the lives of of all the peoples of the world and I think that is a really important part of the function that these technologies or this program plays for the UN to be able to position itself as being both capable of and authorized to um, intervene positively for people um, you know, as opposed to having to work through states, nation states. And so that, yeah, I think there's a really fascinating um, thing going on there around competency and perception of competency. Um, so, and that's why the, the lack of uptake of these technologies and projects is so interesting because it seems to be that you, you can presenting data is as good as having the actual capacity to, to intervene um and maybe an interesting image that captures some of this um comes from the documents around the radio content analysis tool um they're illustrated by these really strange images um of Ugandan women standing in kind of um, empty fields holding radios up against their faces. 
I'm on the um, the UN Global Pulse website right now, and it's it's the landing image, right? You sort of yeah. You you land there. It says big data and artificial intelligence, sustainable, uh, humanitarian, yada yada. And then on the left hand side, there's a woman with a portable radio held up to her face in a field. And so it's a strange image, right? Because um, I mean, I think your first impression is it. It, it fits perfectly well with this um, idea of participation of of the UN creating some kind of a platform for um, the peoples of the world to speak directly to the UN, um, and that's what makes the UN competent to intervene on their behalf. Um, but of course, she's holding a radio, not a mobile phone, and so already in this image. There's this, um, yeah, so that's the, the image that I'm thinking of. There's already um, something weird going on in their own kind of marketing materials about, you know, supposedly showing this participation. Yeah, so it's, a, it's an image that I keep returning to in my, in my writing on the Pulse. So... It, it, does, it sort of speaks to machine listening in such a weird way because there's sort of it's so far from a kind of computational algorithmic sort of data gathering kind of image. It's so much about community and a very old fashioned media device and etc. But there's, there's also some really weird displacements going on, right? So who's the person doing the listening in the image? Mm. It's a Ugandan woman. Who are the people doing the listening in the UN global polls? Well, no one, but if anyone, a machine that's been programmed by, you know, ultimately roads lead back to New York. So there's a lot, a lot of political work in that displacement. The kind of attempt to convince people that the listening is being done. Presumably the idea is that it's being done on behalf of the Uganda mm. woman. So we, we, we might as well be listening for you in our sort of role as, you know, benevolent, surveillers that's right because she's listening to talk back um and radio and therefore so so might we uh in order to sort of un understand on a macro sort of level what she is uh, understanding just sort of with the one radio i don't know but the appeals but, but, to, to but but she, she, she can't understand it from the one radio because mm -hmm. she she's not listening to all of it all of the time so it's an enhanced it's better the un can do much better like than than she ever could. I mean, it's so it's so strange. I mean, it seems patronising to me as well, quite frankly. Um, there's a, a blog post um, in which the the idea of the right to be counted kind of gets introduced by two of the um, experts on that advisory group that I mentioned before. Um, but in that, they ask the question: um, Can data give voice? Which I think um, kind of neatly. Uh, intersects with this image, um, but also with the the entire program, um, which they, uh, you know, I think clearly the pulse um, answer that in the affirmative that that here we have data giving voice, even where voice is impossible because she's holding the wrong device. <laughs> um, and yeah, so uh, recently I was rereading. Um, uh, Gayatri Spivak's article, um, can, can the subaltern 
speak and um, it kind of, yeah, this image and um, that question about data giving voice reminds me of the the conflation between two types of representation that Spivak talks about in that um, in that essay. So, you know, between representation as you know something being symbolized, something being pictured or represented in that sense, and then represented as you know that idea of speaking for in in the way that we're represented by parliamentarians. Um, and that those two things get run together, um, particularly in the English language. I think she says, you know, in, in German, there's actually you know, two different terms for those two meanings of representation. But there, yeah, there is something happening here, I think, with the pulse, where the ability to represent someone through data, um, or the ability ability to represent many someone's through data, um, seems to then also immediately carry, carry with it um, the authorization to represent someone as in speak for them, act on their behalf. I'm wondering if um, the, because I, I think um, we, we're going to need to finish up in a, in, a, in a few minutes, but just I'm thinking, you know, where we've arrived at is, re- is really amazing and it could be, could be interesting um, to have you sort of, depart from this image and kind of present sort of an an analysis of what is the work that this image is sort of doing um, in its representation of listening against the form of listening that is sort of happening with the radio analysis tool. And and maybe those two questions, um, can data give voice against sort of Spivak's question, can, can the subaltern speak? You, you know, it just could be a really nice way of um, sort of framing this image. I mean, uh, <laughs> Andre has um, given many presentations in which that's more or less exactly what he does. I, I'm sorry. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> um, but it, I think it's a great idea too. I mean, I think, you know, I, I don't know if we're rounding out the conversation, um, but there is there remains the question of the live context to unsound and whether... You, I mean, I think with the, uh, because just with the unsound context, the connection has to be strongly to forms of listening um, r- rather than to f- sort of, let's say, the politics of big data more generally. So I think in that context, it would, it would sort of be to depart from an image of listening, which, um, w- yeah, anyway. I mean, should we, should we sort of end the sort of formal bit of the interview? Um, I mean, the only other things I was going to ask were about COVID and and oh, yeah. um, the interception of migration uh, dis- distress signals from boats carrying migrants and refugees. It seems like they're, you know, a kind of part of this expansion, you know, like everybody's responding to COVID. So the UN's got its big data COVID thing, techno solutionism as a, as a way of responding to COVID um, and, and the, you know, the mounting refugee crisis it's just another one um so i just wondered if you had any any particular thoughts on on those either of those projects hmm yeah so i haven't um been following the covid um part of um part of the pulse particularly closely um except yeah i i guess it it just shows the 
I guess the, the logic of the Pulse as this kind of innovation lab is that they're in the same way that they, um, there's this language of um, matching up innovators with problem uh, problem owners. And so they're, they're the innovators and they're looking for the UN's problem owners. And so when it was a refugee crisis, it's the UNHCR who, who are the problem owners. They... They own, they own the problem of the refugee crisis, I guess. Which is to say, yeah, I think that they kind of by the very, like kind of constitutively, they they have to move from crisis to crisis. And so when they see, you know, the COVID, like it, it's inevitable that um, this innovation initiative has to show the worth of its work and its program in, in relation to whatever the the latest crisis is but it's so striking the way that the la- the language and that that move it exactly mirrors everything that every tech startup and mm. major uh you know google amazon and whatever it did i mean it's just suddenly tech presents itself as a solution to the to the problem and 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 it's an, a further opportunity for expansion Actually, um, the one thing that I didn't mention that um, is probably if there's sort of an end point uh, or a hunch that I'm going on with my my PhD project, it's in relation to um, the pulses. The the one project that sort of seems to underpin all these other more prototype um, style projects is their push for a kind of global data commons and and push for what they call data philanthropy. Um, and and that is essentially their, um, it seems that they, they present these tools, like the radio content analysis tool, um, to um, particularly to, to large corporations that hold a lot of data on people. Um, and, and so this is the work that the UN can do with data if you see the value and, and the worthwhileness in that work, you should donate um, the donate the donate the data that you hold on your customers or whatever data you hold um, to the UN, um, so that we can start to turn these tools, whatever tools we have, for analysing data um, on, onto your data sets. Um, and and the, the vision there is of you know no longer having data in any silos, any corporate or national silos, but a big um, global data commons um, and so that seems to be one of the the primary um, purposes of, of of these individual projects is to um, to convince the holders of data to 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 share it in this big happy kind of world of a, a of true data. data commons or a data commons that is possessed by the UN. I, my understanding is that it would be open for all that wish to do good with AI. Well, um, that, that that's not going to happen, is it? I mean, why why would why would Google give up all of their data? I mean, that's it. Because if um, Google and Facebook handed over their data to an open <laughs> Commons, then they would all just grab each other's data. But I mean, it's from one another. But I mean, it would be it would be good, and then we and then we could just sort of rebuild a, a not-for-profit 
Facebook out of I mean, the data good, that they good might be a strong uh, a strong word to use. But well, okay, it'd be better than what we currently have, <laughs> possibly. Um, yeah, I haven't thought about it from from that from the perspective of of your Googles and and why they resist. I um, had mostly been thinking about it from uh, from the pulses perspective, but that's yeah, that's an interesting point. This recording was produced by Mara Schwitt-Vega for Liquid Architecture on the land of the Boon Wurrung and Wurrung people of the Kulin Nation. We acknowledge them as the traditional owners of this land and recognize that sovereignty has never been ceded. We pay our respects to their elders past, present, and emerging. Liquid Architecture is an Australian organization for artists working with sound and listening. To learn more head to liquidarchitecture.org.au